Welcome to Tech Talk. Bye. C D T. For the second year in a row, CDT hosted an event, The Future of Speech Online, with the Charles Koch Institute and the Freedom Forum Institute. Our new partner in the event was 1A with Joshua Johnson, which is produced by WAMU and NPR. I highly recommend listening to the show. Joshua himself led the final session at The Future of Speech Online, where we asked speakers to give a lightning talk on what the future holds for online speakers, especially those in their communities. In this episode, you get to hear four of those incredible talks. The first is from Joelle Jones, a delegate in the Michigan House of Representatives. Next up will be Nick Alder, the founder and editor-in-chief of Black Girl Fly magazine. She's followed by Maggie Mayhem, who is an advocate for sex workers' rights. And finally, Shannon Watts, the founder of Moms Demand Action. Each has powerful and compelling thoughts they share, and we were honored to have their voices included in our event. Enjoy. Our next speaker is a delegate from the Michigan House of Delegates. He's a Democrat serving his first term. He represents the 11th House District in Michigan, which is just west of Detroit. He's also a student at the University of Michigan Dearborn. Please welcome Joelle Jones. Good afternoon, everyone. Whoa, whoa. All right, let's try that again. Good afternoon, everyone. So happy to be here. I just want to thank uh, the Center of uh, Democracy and Technology for inviting me out. Uh, thanks for you all being here. I was talking to Brandon before this trying to debate if I want to read it off, you know, off the dome, like the young people say. Um, so I guess just remind me once I get done to look at my hand. These are my notes that I wanted to tell you all. But I'm going to read the speech, too, so I can get some points across. Uh, but you know, when I was first invited to speak, uh, to speak here, I had to think about what I was going to talk about. And so um, I certainly didn't want anyone to think that I was an expert in technology. Um, like I was going to explain like how my Snapchats converge to like bits and bytes and it's converted across the globe, or how I got like my team back home sending me uh, jokes to tell you all. Uh, I wish I would send some better material, but uh, I don't have it. Um, but one thing I can't talk about because I have seen it firsthand is how technology um, can inspire people and move them to action. But before I get started, I just want to share a little bit about myself. Um, like you said, I was raised, uh, born and raised in Inkster, Michigan. It's right on the outskirts of Detroit. Um, I graduated from, well, not graduated. I have two courses left. Almost graduated. Optimistic. Um, from the University of Michigan, Dearborn, with a degree in political science and business. I'm also a member of the Army ROTC program, National Guard, and auxiliary police officer. Um, but it was only when I decided to run for uh, Inkster City Council back in 2015 uh, that I first uh, felt that I really began to find my purpose. And so it was apparent that no one was really connecting uh, with people in my city in a way that I thought was really relevant to us, especially anyone that was my age. And so not long after that, um, I found out that it wasn't just in Inkster, but it was in like the entire state of Michigan. And so I decided to take that up as my rallying cry. I think too many people were disengaged from the political process because they were feeling ignored. Um, but it wasn't because people didn't care about what was going on around them. It was just because they felt um, they were left behind um, after years of being disenfranchised. And so I decided I couldn't stand by and watch this happen. So at 21, I ran for the Michigan legislature. I mean, in 2016, I defied the president, became the youngest one uh, in Michigan's history, but I didn't get there by myself. And so what brought me to the state capitol was recognizing that the people of Michigan just wanted someone to listen to them. They wanted someone to talk to them in a way that was relevant um, to what they thought about. And I think that's the key going forward. Um, recent studies have shown that 67% of all U.S. adults get um, a great amount of their uh, news from social media. 
And so that number has gone up exponentially in the last few years and is um, slated to rise even higher. It's clear that this is a medium that people are becoming accustomed to, uh, and they basically use it to get to know what's going on in the world around them. What's worrying about this, however, is that even though we have the greatest access to information in all of human history, um, that social media platforms have become a breeding ground for disinformation campaigns. And so thoroughly researched and better articles um, from respected news outlets are given the same weight as any random person with the internet connection. So, uh, social media treats both types of information as equal when they clearly are not. And so the question becomes, how do we break through the noise? Uh, with so much confusion and misinformation uh, being spread around at such a rapid pace, how do we help people differentiate fact from fiction, uh, particularly when they don't have the time to investigate uh, the news for themselves? So the answer to that is building trust, uh, not appealing to authority. Um, and so I hope people listen to me because they trust me to listen to them. This is perhaps important to communities of color than any other group in our society. Um, disenfranchisements of the rights of people of color dates back to the founding of our nation. And no one should forget that Jim Crow laws existed um, throughout our country up until fairly recently in our history. Even after civil rights movements, modern-day voter suppression and political gerrymandering uh, remains pervasive. And these tactics continue to disappoint. Disapp I got a retainer on my mouth, y'all. <laughs> these tactics continue to disproportionately affect communities of color more than any other. And because of that, uh, rebuilding trust in these communities is an enormous task. Um, so no one expects that a single Facebook post alone uh, will convince these communities, particularly young people, um, that they do matter. But in a concerted effort uh, using platforms like Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, um, we are offered the means through which we can forge personal relationships with people in our community. Uh, this is how we can bring the political process back to the living room or to your iPad um, and, and give communities back their voice um, that they've been lacking for years. And this is our duty um, and our obligation. And I remember to look at my hand. And so this is what I wanted to say, uh, just after listening to everyone, you know, like social media is like so great and so important these days. I think I mentioned it earlier that you can, uh, you know, have a neighbor that you live right next door to um, or communicate with people that live thousands of miles away, um, you know, through a single click, through a single follow, something like that. And so, you know, something I've always been fond of uh, is, you know, realizing that in genuine community, there are no sides. So, I, you know, I encourage all speech. Um, but I also think it's important to realize that, you know, one of the most revolutionary things in the world we can do, uh, which helps me in politics, is getting to know our neighbors. Um, and so, you know, when you meet people where they're at, um, this online, offline communication uh, helps bolster all kinds of things that you would never imagine. So I think it's just important for us moving forward uh, to make sure we're uh, fond of relationship building. Because whether or not you're online or offline, as long as we're building, you know, meaningful relationships throughout the process, uh, this is how this, the conversation uh, becomes inclusive and diverse, and it's actually conducive um, to our collective growth. And so no you know, community, whether you believe in one thing or believe in uh, something else, whether you know black, white, Democrat, Republican, all these different things, uh, we can eventually come together, reach some sort of compromise um, at the end of the day. So just you know, love your neighbor. So it's in the Bible, so you should trust it. <laughs> but that's it for me. Thank you. <laughs>
a poet, an activist, a Wonder Woman, an all-around badass, and I have very uh, lots of things in common. Um, she identifies as a queer black woman, so do I. Um, we are born to Caribbean parents, raised in New York City, and so, so am I. Um, we both share an intense curiosity for telling stories about the intersectional worlds that we see. We're both also Aquarians, which I think makes us the coolest people on the planet. <laughs> I didn't come to her work until college, um, connecting with online forums and platforms that helped me to um, understand the text of black feminists. Um, and so I'll have to go backward to tell you about how I see the future. I was raised in New York City by a single mother in the 90s. Um, stories of black mothers' singlehood were not prevalent in any of the things that I was looking at when I was a young kid. The images were often non-existent, distorted, and looked nothing like the community that I knew. My black single mother was not just my mother. Um, she raised me in a tribal community consisting of my grandmother, family members, aunts and uncles, who worked together in a tribe to help build and give me the resources that I needed to succeed. When I looked in media and looked online, I didn't see things that looked, experiences that looked similar to mine. And so I took to internet platforms to think about the ways that I was creating my own identity, coming, to, coming of age in New York City, trying to find ways to connect with individuals who shared experiences like mine. Might be immigrants, uh, single black, of single black mothers, um, queer, black young girls looking to create a way and space in this world. I might date myself a little bit here, but I'm gonna talk about my own personal journey in digital storytelling online. So it starts with MySpace. On MySpace, I tried to um, develop my coding skills. I'm telling stories about who I am through these uh, word art and connecting with other young black kids from in my neighborhood, but also throughout this world. Next, I jumped to Tumblr. On Tumblr, I learned the importance of cultural and visual uh, culture. I understand that th we can use short form and long form types of content in order to tell stories about who we are and where we're coming from. In this space, I connected with people across the globe to think about how to create space to write myself into existence. It wasn't until college that I came to creating this platform called Black Girl Fly Magazine. This platform for me is a way that I amplify the voices of black millennial women uh, across this world. I try to connect experiences that are intersectional and amplify the voices of women that look like me. It is in the legacy of Audre Lorde and my grandmother, my mother, and the tribe that raised me that I try to tell stories of the experiences of people who look like me. I try to center a conversation around transformative relationships, the contributions and brilliance of black women, my starting point for the future. On this, I wanna leave you with three facts. The future of the internet and free speech is intersectional. We can't have that without understanding the intersections of identities. Power arises when we talk about our nuances and the things that make us unique. We find special places across the internet 
that will help us find refuge and for people who are marginalized and come from marginalized communities. For black women, for queer folks, humanity and safety, and the free speech movement is important for who we, move, us moving forward. The future of the internet, number two, the future of the internet will power community action and healing. I think that we all understand that black people um, don't always find a safe space on the internet. Day to day we are exposed to black death, issue, uh, images of black trauma, and so for me, I'm looking to the internet to, to transform over the next decade, to provide tools for us to transform relationships, to heal, and to call each other in, rather than to use a toxic culture of calling each other out. I'm hoping that over the next t 10 years, the internet will transform as a platform, helping us to create space for healing, community, accountability, and for ways just for us to move forward. Lastly, I would like to say that the future of the internet is already here. When I look around to the communities, community, communities that I'm connected with, whether it be in my current home, Chicago, or back in New York, I know too many creative black individuals who are creating the future of the internet right now. So right now, I want you to get your pens ready. I'm gonna list, list off to you some platforms that you need to be, be familiar with. So starting with the safe spaces of Party Noir and Black Girl Fly Magazine, I've also gonna, I'm gonna share with you the work of the Slap Collective. They are located in New York, creating space for creative expression. Black Utopia, housed in Chicago. They are creating a space for exploring ideal situations for black people. Black creatives, they are doing actual work for the culture now. Brooklyn Boyhood, they're doing work to undo toxic masculinity on the internet and abroad. Women of Color and Solidarity, Queer Black Creatives, Creative Smart Girls, Shine Text, Therapy for Black Girls. These are all platforms that I believe are doing the work of doing action for healing, helping us to transform and tell transformative stories, helping to build community online and offline. And so I think in the legacy of my grandmother and Audre Lorde, we have everything that we need right now to push the future forward. And so, yeah, I wanna leave you with that. Thank you so much. Next up, our next speaker is a sex workers advocate and the founder of Harm Redux, a drug safety project out of San Francisco. Please welcome Maggie Mayhem. I know I must be a little bit nervous because my watch just said that I was resting, but my heart rate was over 100. So thank goodness I have technology to let me know about the flitters and the jitters in my belly. So as you can see, I'm expecting. So I want to be a little bit optimistic, and I tend to be an optimistic person overall. As someone who works as a birth worker, one of my many hats, as you may have heard from my intro, uh, someone who helps support uh, people during labor and delivery, the emotional and practical but non-medical aspects. I feel very optimistic about speech because of things like Instagram allowing birth imagery to be fully shown in all of its glory. Whether it's in a hospital, at home, in water, on land, indoor, outdoor, upside down, you can see it all. I think that's fantastic and I was really surprised that came out of the blue for me that Instagram would allow that. As someone who does a lot of work around harm reduction in the opioid epidemic, I feel very optimistic about the fact that this word is being spread online. 
that more people know about harm reduction, that more people are concerned and finding ways that they can help save their loved ones, that they can help do something. I think that there are some storm clouds ahead, but overall, I think that it's going to be okay there. As someone who does sex worker rights advocacy, however, I'm feeling a little bit pessimistic. This is partly because just in the past couple of days, we saw some more bans come down from Tumblr and Facebook in terms of content. Tumblr is going to remove all of their adult content, and Facebook is now going to more heavily scrutinize speech on the website. It means they don't want to see any type of sexual speech, even vague statements like, let's get together for a good time. That's very vague. That's very overbearing. I think that we're in trouble with this because overall the internet is becoming more consolidated and corporatized. We want to have it more sanitized. And so, although as many people tell me there's plenty of places to find porn on the web, it's harder and harder and harder for someone in the sex industry to have a basic social media account. It's hard to be on Facebook. You'll probably get kicked off. You can't be on Instagram necessarily because even though birth can be shown, a bikini photo from the wrong person might get you booted. I have seen people lose their GoFundMe fundraiser accounts. In fact, I once received a permanent ban from PayPal. Back in my younger and more flexible days, I was in the adult film industry. There was a major disaster, and I thought I would use my platform to help fundraise. Simple enough. I had a lot of followers, and if people were going to open their wallets to see my movies, they could open their wallets to people who were in a disaster zone. For that, PayPal decided it was inappropriate, that they could not distinguish between my work and the adult pictures and the fundraising I was doing. They had to make the assumption something nefarious was going on, and they banned me. Not only did they ban me, they actually seized my funds. It took me six years to get that money back. Six long years. That was really hard, and I, I don't know that I wouldn't have, would ever have gotten it back if it weren't for the fact that so many people were affected. So I am a little bit afraid of that. In April, there was a significant piece of legislation known as SESTA-FOSTA. This is the Stop Enabling Sex Traffickers Act, or the Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act. And since I'm talking about trafficking, I want to make something very clear. This is something that is wrong. It's horrible. I am strongly opposed to it. I am no more in favor of trafficking than critics of the Patriot Act were of terrorism. We're just people who looked at the full text of this legislation and what it's capable of doing. This had far more power than I think the campaigners ever really realized. In general, the human trafficking narrative is swarming the nation. It's something that is so frightening. Um, it's inflammatory, and it compels us all to action. And anyone being forced to do something against their will should. However, I also think it's interesting what kind of actions we're taking. The Trafficking Victim Protection Act expired in September of 2017. What did it do? Well, that was one that set aside resources for people. It required that there be a national annual report on goods made from child and slave labor. It questioned diplomatic immunity for anyone who would traffic domestic labor. It had um, a general look at trafficking as a whole, not just sex trafficking, but agricultural, textiles, domestic labor. It looked at all of it. And why did that one expire? We have something now called SESTA-FOSTA, but we need to remember that the abolition of sexual speech is not restitution for inequality, nor is it redress for the material conditions that create vulnerability in the first place. It's a very symbolic action, but it doesn't take into account 
why someone might be in the circumstances that they are. It relies on the idea that sexual content is a unified discourse of harm with the singular impact of inter-injury, that, that this violence radiates from the kind of media rather than being reflected within it. The evidence of history is the strongest testimony I have against this. This is a very old, very old industry. It was not invented with the internet. We're not gonna solve it by censoring the internet. And there's great problems in this legislation and these prohibitions because of their capacity to shape the internet, to give meaning to the content that we put on it, and to perceive what people believe their digital rights are. We use this platform for so many things. There was a recent study that found that Craigslist reduced the female homicide rate by 17%. That is because it is safer to answer an email than it is to stick your head in a car window. After the passage of SESTA-FOSTA, outreach workers saw that there were four to eight times as many women working outside. Those are people who had been working indoors, who had been using these platforms to screen, to find community, to share resources, and they don't have that opportunity anymore. So unfortunately, my vision for the future is we'll be talking a lot about loss. We already are. There are people who are already missing. There are people who are already dead. So it's not just that we've lost a chance to Facebook with our friends or to share Instagram pictures. We have lost the very tools that people are using to save their lives. And I hope that in the future we can get them back. Thank you. Is the founder of Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America, an organization that was founded in the aftermath of the Sandy Hook Massacre at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut, for our final speaker, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Shannon Watts. Thank you for having me here today. I really appreciate it. Uh, I'm here because of social media. I was a stay-at-home mom of five kids in a suburb of Indiana when Sandy Hook happened. And that day, I decided I would get on Facebook and have a conversation about the impact of gun violence on children in particular in this country with other women, with other mothers. Now, keep in mind, I only had 75 Facebook friends at the time. I was not a social media phenom. I did not even have a Twitter handle. But because of the power of social media, within hours, I was connected to other like-minded, mostly women across the country who decided, like me, that it was time to get off the sidelines. And here we are six years later, it'll be six years next week that Sandy Hook happened. We now have five million followers, a chapter in every single state of the country. We have hundreds of thousands of active volunteers like me. We've stopped thousands of bad NRA supported bills and we've supported and passed hundreds of bills that are strong, good gun laws. For example, we've passed laws in 28 states to disarm domestic abusers. That all started on Facebook. And so when I think about social media and activism, I think a lot about our volunteers in small southern and midwestern towns where talking about gun violence prevention isn't super acceptable. And these are women who may not have Twitter accounts, that maybe only are on Facebook to share pictures of their kids or have conversations with friends and family, and suddenly something horrific happens in their community. 
a gun suicide or a gun homicide, or they read about something on the news and they decide they want to get off the sidelines. And they feel compelled to prevent yet another community from experiencing this devastation. And that can be really intimidating, especially if you need to step up and use your real name and talk about this issue on the news. But the other great thing about social media, in addition to getting people off the sidelines, is to connect them with one another. So if you are a new volunteer in rural Alabama, you can immediately connect, for example, on Facebook with a volunteer in Lubbock, Texas, and learn about how she is successfully tackling gun violence in a red state where she lives. So social media, for all its faults, is also a great connector, and it's how we built our community across the country and let others know they're not alone in their fight. We keep each other updated about what's going on on Facebook, update them about advocacy days that are going to happen at state houses. We use hashtags on Twitter to put pressure on companies and lawmakers and influencers to change their gun policies. We have connected more than 24,000 supporters about events that mark National Gun Violence Awareness Day every year in June. And we also use a texting tool called Hustle. You know, I was in uh, Las Vegas right before the election doing election work, and I was walking along with all these type A women as we were knocking doors, and they were using their phones to hustle thousands of people to educate them about different candidates and gun bill initiatives while we were knocking doors. So it's an amazing tool to be able to multitask. But there's also this darker side of social media. And really, we can't talk about the future of online activism without talking about that darker side. We live in a country where 300,000 hate crimes occur every year, many of which involve guns. In fact, the FBI recently announced that in 2017, there were more than 7,000 hate crimes reported nationwide, a 17% increase since 2016. And look, every nation is home to racists and bigots and misogynists who hate people and want to attack them. But only America gives those people easy access to arsenals and ammunition. Tragically, we saw this play out in Michigan in this last fall, how online platforms can coddle white supremacists, and then we in turn give them easy access to guns, and that enables these people to destroy lives and communities, like after 11 were killed after, during their worship in a synagogue. And hate is also directed at the, those of us who refuse to remain silent on this issue. Our volunteers, including myself, have received rape and death threats online and offline since we got involved in this activism. We've had armed gun extremists show up at our events with loaded guns, even when children are present. And at one event in Kentucky a couple of years ago, nearly a dozen men walked in with their firearms and just sat in the front row to try to intimidate and silence our volunteers as we talked about as something as simple as just wanting a background check on every gun sale. And even the NRA has gotten in on this misogyny, going as far as publishing articles that question whether I can call myself a mom because I once had a career. So trolling isn't just a matter of sharing a difference of opinion. It's a political tool that is used by racists and misogynists and bigots 
to wage wars against the most vulnerable Americans. It's used to shut us up and shut us down so that we become a silent majority. But we will not shut up, and we will not allow a disgruntled few to disrupt the work being done by gun safety advocates, feminists, disability rights activists, and so many others working so hard in this country. What does it say about us as a society that women and people of color cannot stand up for themselves without being hit by a barrage of threatening online threats? So that is why we are working to center protecting online communicated communities that are dedicated to saving and enriching lives. Harassment cannot and should not have a place in our online spaces. Our tireless Moms Demand Action volunteers continue to fight for gun safety despite these threats of violence and abuse. This isn't the world we want to live in. It's not the world we want our children to inherit. But ultimately, we know that if we lose our children, we have nothing left to lose. So that is why we stand up bravely online and offline to fight for this issue. I would urge all of you here today to join us. And you can do that uh, by joining your local chapter of Moms Demand Action. It's not just moms. We call it mothers and others. Um, and if you have your phones, you can text the word READY to 64433 to become a part of our organization. It's also another really handy social media tool. Um, but ultimately, you know, we cannot allow the, the cowardice of a few to jeopardize the, po the, the possibilities of all that we can accomplish using online tools, but also making sure that we're acting offline. The future and the future of our children depends on it. Thank you so much. I love those talks so much and hope you did as well. You can watch videos of their talks and also find talks from the other great Future of Speech speakers on CDT's YouTube channel. Check them out. And we hope you'll join us for the 2019 Future of Speech Online, which date TBD, but watch for it. That's it for this episode of Tech Talk. I'm Ryan Wazalowski. Thanks for listening. <laughs>